Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wed Wednesday. Yeah, it's it's that's not well, that's how it's spelled. Wednesday, April twenty eighth, twenty ten. I am obviously distracted by thoughts and things. Oh, man. Bright, shiny objects can distract me. <sighs> Getting ready to leave tomorrow. Details forthcoming. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of just, I mean, crazy made-up stuff about God as if, you know, anything you make up just has to be true. I mean, you know. Forget God's word. I mean, we live in a progressive era. We, you know, religion has progressed beyond the Bible, and now you can just make up whatever you want. That seems to be the prevailing thought of the day. So, okay, I I have come to the microphone today sore. I I am. Mm, uh, I I went to the gym today, and uh, I like to swim. Uh, that's one of the things I've been doing. Is yeah, I yeah, I'm either on the elliptical or I'm swimming or I'm doing weight training. Uh, but my my favorite cardio exercise is swimming. Well, the, the reason why is because you know back when I was a teenager, and uh, and had a twenty eight inch waist, uh, I swam on a swim team, and so I enjoy swimming. And so today, I just when I got to the gym, I you know I was feeling good, and I thought you know what, let's go for a you know a good workout here, hour and twenty minutes. <laughs> I, I was a limp noodle. When I got out of the pool today and, uh, in fact, just uh, went right to the shower, dressed and left. I didn't even spend any time in the sauna, which I enjoy doing. Um, but um, now I, I come to the microphone today going, I hurt. <laughs> yes, I hurt. So, and I still have many, many more pounds to uh, to lose. So if I, if I... <laughs> If I sound like I don't have a lot of energy, it's just that I can't really move. I, I'm kind of I'm stuck, you know, it, it pretty much holding my you know, staying in one position and not moving too much because my arms are and my legs and my and my just basically the whole body. It's just kaput. 
So, you know, just want to let you know that. So if you're sitting there going, you know, it doesn't sound like Chris has a lot of energy. That's I spent it all. That's the thing. And the moral of the story is, is that, well, you can't lose all the weight in one workout. Just want to let you know that. So in case you were confused, because apparently I was. <sighs> now, I, I've been telling you all week that this is a, an, a, a the schedule this week is a little shorter. Uh, tomorrow, there, w- there will be Friday Light. We have a Friday Light edition of Fighting for the Faith manana. Uh, uh, today though, we have a regular program and then Friday will be a best of program because, uh, first thing in the morning, uh, pack up the, uh, pirate Christian radio mobile and, uh, head out on a road trip and, um, going to an emergent conference, uh, that begins on Friday. And so tomorrow I'm going to spend the, uh, the afternoon on the road traveling and, uh, and I come back on Sunday, but Anyway, that's I just and you, why would you want to? Yeah, the reason I go to these things is so that you don't have to. That's what it basically boils down to. And uh, you know, in order to continue to uh, study and understand uh, the emergent church, I think it's imp- it's imperative that I go and not and, and I that I not just read their books that but that I actually attend their conferences because when you see people in person, you you, you catch things that you can't catch from reading their books. Um, so this is important stuff. All right. And plus, I, I just like the fact that when I show up at these things, they go, is that, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's Chris Rosebro. And I don't go there to pick fights or to speak prophetically. I don't bring my bullhorn or my microphone or anything like that. I'm not even going there to do any interviews. I'm going there to take notes, to listen. That's the, that's the idea. All right. Today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, USA Today story, 72% of millennials are more spiritual than religious. Mm-hmm. And then I got a Huffington Post story that says that Christianity must adapt. Um, and then uh, it, and then I'm going to do something a little bit different. You know, kind of in by way of you know, contrast to, the, to that, um, I'm going to be reading uh, uh, basically, uh, a lecture that John Stott delivered in 1972 entitled Jesus Christ and the authority of the word of God. And, uh, I just a fantastic, uh, piece worth passing along. And then today for our sermon review, we got a good sermon. It's not really a sermon. It's a lecture. In fact, this will be the first of the uh, lectures that uh, we're going to play here at fighting for the faith from the just concluded together for the gospel conference and i've got john macarthur's uh, uh, uh plenary on um the sinner neither able nor willing and uh, he's talking about the doctrine of total depravity that's um you know that how the what do we call it in the lutheran church uh well luther wrote a book called the bondage of the will um Original sin. Yeah, sorry. I told you. See, I swam too much. I swam my brains out, literally. Anyway, so we're going to be doing that today. Good stuff on deck today. No, So no bizarre sermons. I, <laughs> I <just laughs> got to take a break from some of those from, from time to time. Otherwise, uh, my brain might actually brought out of my head for real. So, you know, the, those are one of the hazards here, at, you know, uh, working at Pirate Christian Radio and working and doing Fighting for the Faith is that I do run the risk of having my brain actually fall out of my head uh, after uh, reviewing some of the stuff that we review here at Fighting for the Faith. And, you know, what we had Monday, we had uh, we had Jay Baker deny uh, basically claiming that Jesus committed sins. 
And then on uh, Tuesday, Carrie uh, Shook, I mean, he's now apparently the poster child for a circus church because he had a tightrope walker doing his sermon for him, you know. Nothing gets more circusy than that. So anyway, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper, and uh, which means from USA Today, the headline reads: "72 Survey: 72 percent of millennials are more spiritual than religious." All right, this story is by Kathy Lynn uh, Grossman of USA Today. And it reads, most young adults today don't pray, don't worship, don't read the Bible. A a major survey by a Christian research firm shows if the trend continues, quote, the millennial generation will see churches closing as quickly as GM dealerships, says Tom Rayner, president of Lifeway Christian Resources. In the group survey of 1,200 18 to 29-year-olds, 72% said that they were really more spiritual than religious. Among the 65% who call themselves Christian, quote, many are either mushy Christians or Christians in name only. Uh, Rainer says most are just indifferent. Uh, The more precisely you try to measure their Christianity, uh, the fewer you find committed to the faith. Key findings in the phone survey conducted in August and released today, 65% rarely or never pray with others and 38% almost never pray by themselves either. 65% rarely or never attend worship services. 67% don't read the Bible or sacred text. Many are unsure Jesus is the only path to heaven. Say, uh, half say yes and half say no. Quote, we have dumbed down what it means to be part of the church so much that it means almost nothing, even to people who already say they are part of the church, Rayner says. The findings which document a steady drift away from church life dovetail with a LifeWay survey of teenagers in 2007 who drop out of church and a study in February by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life which compared the beliefs of millennials with those of earlier generations of young people. The new survey has a margin of error of plus or minus 2.8 percentage points, even among those in the survey who believe they will go to heaven because they have accepted Jesus as their savior. 68% did not mention faith, religion, or spirituality when asked what was really important in life. 50% do not attend church, at least weekly. 36% rarely or never read the Bible, neither are these young Christians Christians evangelical in the original meaning of the term. Eager to share the gospel, just 40% say this is their responsibility. Even so, Rayner is encouraged, encouraged, he's encouraged, though, by the 15%, who he says appear to be deeply committed Christians in study, prayer, worship, and action. Colin Hansen uh, 29, uh, who's 29, author of Young, Restless, and Reformed, about a thriving minority of traditionalist Christians, agrees. I'm not going to say these numbers aren't true and aren't uh, grim, but they also uh, drive people like me to build new, passionately Christian dynamic churches, says Hansen, who is studying for the ministry. He sees many in his generation veering to moralistic, therapeutic deism, uh, quote, God wants you to be happy and or to do good things. I would not call that Christianity, however. 
That Hanson, Mr. Hanson, I completely agree with you. The 2007 Lifeway study found seven in ten Protestants ages 18 to 30, both evangelical and mainline, who went to church regularly in high school, said they quit attending by age 23, and 34% of those had not returned even sporadically by the age of 30. The Pew study, uh, the Pew surveys found young people today are were significantly more likely than those in earlier generations to say they didn't identify with any religious group. Neither are millennials any more likely than earlier generations to turn toward the faith affiliation as they grow older. Now, <clears throat> uh, the, the the survey's grim. I, this this is no way you know. There's no way to to um, <laughs> change that fact. This is the this the results are absolutely not good at all. And in fact, um, I saw a. The Christian Post, a gal wrote wrote about this. Hang on a second here. I'm going to pull something up on my web browser here. Go to ChristianPost.com. Uh, ChristianPost.com. I, I saw somebody writing about this. Yeah, um, this is uh, Audrey Barrick of the Christian Post. Uh, she wrote that though a majority of teens and young, young adults identify as Christians, a new study suggests only 15% of them have personal relationships with Jesus and are deeply committed. Most American millennials, those born between uh, 1980 and 1991, don't pray regularly. Few read their Bibles or other religious texts, and many don't attend church on a weekly basis. Um, yeah, uh, so basically the Christian Post is uh, covering this by their angle is, is that they're lost despite the fact that they have a Christian label. Now, uh, th- this survey does not come as any kind of shock to me. However, it is still grim and bad news. The reason why it's not a shock to me to find out that uh, that these millennials are pretty much bailing on the church and they don't they have no concept of what a you know, literally at all what it means to even be a Christian, and there's no fruit of repentance in their life. It, the reason why is because well, I'm going to just basically put it out there. This is the end result of the entertainment-based churches and youth groups that have basically infested this country and the world and different segments of the world now for the for the better part of uh, two uh, two decades. You know, if you send your child to a youth group, and the thing that they're really good at is playing the PlayStation Three. Or they're really good at having lock-ins where the kids can play the Wii. Or they're really great at, you know, attracting a crowd and getting a good group of people together. And, of course, you know, they, they have the obligatory praise and worship time with, like, a, a simple moralistic meditation prior to the good stuff, the entertaining thing that everyone came for. Uh, is it any wonder that the, that type of ministry doesn't work and that, in reality... This obsession with entertainment and being relevant and watering down biblical doctrine and just kind of giving people, you know, the scant thumbnail moralistic therapeutic uh, ripped out of context ideas of the Bible um, that the end result is, is that you create you're creating entire generations of non-believers. And many of these people might even still attend your church. 
pastors, if you're not confronting people with their sins and and giving them Christ and him crucified for their sins and are not boldly proclaiming the entire counsel of the word of God and boldly teaching uh, sound biblical doctrine, then you're creating these lost Christians. You're creating the next generation of people who basically will go to hell, but they'll feel really good about themselves that they've applied certain biblical principles and maybe even have a more moral life than uh, their pagan next-door neighbor. But, yeah, that's not going to help them in the end, is it? So how do we turn this around? I mean, I'm not encouraged by the 15% that are supposedly committed Christians in the millennial generation. I, I just... I don't find that encouraging at all. I find it very discouraging, considering the fact that, well, I remember a time when things were different. Now, I'm not, I'm in my 40s, so I'm not exactly that old, but just in my lifetime, things have taken a decidedly bad turn. And I lay the blame at the seeker driven, entertainment relevant based churches. And those pastors who are off in bizarro world preaching anything except for what they're supposed to be preaching, which is God's word. So how do we turn it around? Preach the gospel. Go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to Gen Y, Gen X, Gen Millennia, whatever. That's what Jesus told us to do. Proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all generations. Plain and simple. It's not our job to convert people. That's what God does. And he does it through the proclamation of the gospel. And and here's the deal. They're trying to measure fruit, you know, via behavior. Okay. Now, there might be some methodological issues with trying to determine things by, you know, conducting this survey. But here's the deal. Christians, those who've been regenerated through the preaching of the gospel, have had their sins confronted. They've been driven to their knees in despair, knowing that they deserve God's wrath and that their their only hope is the forgiveness of sins won by Christ. Th- those are people who've been raised uh, from the dead by God himself. And um, those people, they bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. Don't sit there and preach for fruit and expect to get it. You're not. Preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and let the Holy Spirit cultivate the fruit. And that's how it happens. So as long as the church continues to um, have this little love affair that it's having with the world, this little love affair that it has with entertainment, this 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 notion that it could just shave off this hard teaching or just kind of put that one off in the mothballs and not bring it out and not, you know, and, and not really teach God's word and proclaim the biblical gospel. Uh, and that's how we're supposed to grow the church. What you're really doing is filling your pews or uh, theater seats with the cup holders uh, to capacity with unbelievers who haven't been transformed raised from the dead and regenerated through the powerful preaching of God's word and the gospel. And uh, instead you've got, you've drawn a, a very nice crowd of unbelievers and you'll find out that 
what you're really doing is just making him more spiritual, but not Christian. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, it's true. All right. Looking at my... Oh, I gotta do this one. <laughs> Looking at my time, I'm going. Okay, I got. I do. I have time. Yeah, I don't care if I have time or not. I got to talk about this one. This one uh, was written by Alex Wilhelm Wilhelm of the um, Christ of, of the uh, Huffington Post. And uh, boy, this is an interesting one. Uh, this guy, well, the Huffington Post, my recently discovered liberal treasure trove of really bad liberal theology. Um, a veritable spring of uh, cesspool um, theology. I, I mean, I have to dive into here on a regular basis. Anyway, Alex Wilhelm, uh, who is a writer and religious commentator, has a uh, a piece that he did entitled "Why Christianity Must Adapt or Perish." <gasps> Here's what he writes: There's a fundamental question facing Christian sects in America an ideological distinction that cleaves many churches into two different camps. By the way, this is, he's wrong. He's bifurcating here. And there's a third camp. I'll talk about it here. Um, it is better to fit the church. Is it better to fit the church and Christianity to the world, thus keeping the faith relevant? Or is it better to mold the world to the faith? Put more bluntly, whose vision of the future of Christianity is correct? The conservative literal Baptists? Or the modern liberal Episcopalians? Which is best for, for the people? Which is best for the world? Are their dogmas really so distinct? The non-religious of the world will be quick to point out that this is, in fact, something of a new question, whether the religion should fit the culture or whether or the other way around. Uh, actually, no, um, Alex, it's not. Um, this is exactly what the modernist liberals did at the beginning of the 20th century. So, no, this is not a new thing at all um historically christianity's uh, church held much more control and influence in daily lives of people around the world the question of adapting uh, uh the religion to better fit a morality in flux uh, most people would say for the better was moot the bible and the church were both the guide and the morality the modern times have changed the equation Freedom to practice religion as one wishes implies less central homogeneity. It's a postmodern term. Among Christians, without a central core doctrine, well, they can wander. Once you have the freedom to leave, to find a better fitting sex, start your own, or just stop practicing altogether, it becomes much more difficult to corral a society. Alex, do you really think... Christianity is all about corralling society. Well, we continue. Unless a single sect so dominates a certain area, no specific church or even Christendom can exert enough control to enforce its views. Interesting way to talk about it. Control and enforce. Hmm. Sounds like uh, he he's bought into this postmodern idea that uh, truth is, is something that uh, oppresses. It's if you believe in truth, it's a, it's a tool of the powerful to oppress and suppress uh, the masses and put them under your thumb. But that's not what the church is about. But we continue. I would posit that voluntary assimilation is no control at all. This, of course, is why Brian McLaren, 
<coughs> is on the right path, and his most recent work, A New Kind of Christianity. McLaren is advocating a different, perhaps upgraded form of Christianity that takes a more objective view of history and employs a better interpretation of the Bible. Well, this allows him to take what he finds good and best in that book, rendering it more applicable and accessible to a modern educated people. At least he recognizes the challenge as uh, humanity progresses around the world, unlocking the science of the universe, time seems to move more quickly. The pace of progress accelerates from the depressed call to nothing new under the sun to the doubling of human knowledge every decade or so. Estimates vary. Pick your number. We now expect change as an inherent, paradoxically stable truth. How does this fit with the literalist conservative Christian view? Well, you can see that it is, it is intrinsically opposed. A more liberal interpretation of Christian doctrine could make space for science that promises the great, the life-improving, and the new. A literal interpretation of the Bible offers regressionism and leaves little more for pro little room for progress. This is exactly where McLaren finds the inherent problem with modern Christianity and, is, and the exact thing must change. The Bible is a ballast. I mean, he might, <clears throat> Alex might as well be saying that the Bible basically is a big rock around our neck or a ball and chain around our legs and our ankles that keep us from progress. Um, this guy doesn't know the real history of Western civilization. It was the Reformation that really lit the fire and, and sent scientific study off into the stratosphere. How so? Well, it's when people rediscovered the gospel, rediscovered the scriptures, and were able to read them for themselves, and they approached they then then approached science. What they were basically trying to do was was figure out how God constructed things. They believe the the the, the big impetus for the modern science that we have was a, a desire to understand how God had built and constructed the universe and so that we can understand the things that God had done. That's the and and it's basically modern science still owes Christianity a big one. Cuz if it wasn't for the reformation, science would not have made the strides that it did. It wasn't naturalism that caused science to take off. It was Reformation Christianity that really sent it into the stratosphere. Anyway, we continue. What of a new uh, What of a new Bible? One that makes more sense, examining the past and its pro and is pro human when applied to the future, releasing past dogma for improvements and corrections. Well, as you may have guessed, it is now it is not necessary to replace the physical work and the words of the Bible. It's sufficient to have have it become a new book via a fresh reading. Now, where does that leave us? The temperate Christians among us find that uh, to be a fair idea, already have, having been employing it in everything but name, most Christians read Genesis and Revelation as allegory and tale, not as fact. The, pro the proportion of Christians who take Scripture to be literal truth declines as the education of the population rises, creating an increasingly in irreconcilable tension among intellectuals and the religious. Testament to this is the difference in religiosity shown between scientists and the average citizen. The relevance and perceived truth of the Bible among Christians and non-Christians through time has always been changing, but the general trend has long been towards complete repudiation by the non-religious and reinterpretation among the faithful. 
Brian McLaren is calling for a much, uh, a much quicker change, a larger conscious a- adaptation of the religious of the religion's text, and therefore the religion itself. This manifest is a firm. Uh, repudiation of the most odious passages, for example, how to enslave, when to stone, and so forth, are to be disregarded. Why should these changes be made now? Is there such a dire need here in the United States? Well, in short, yes. The Pew Forum has a rather revealing recent poll that outlines a quick collapse of the American religion. Quick, that is, in historic context. Given that we have long been a majority Christian nation, the Pew members of aggregate religion are a fair look at how Christianity is surviving in the States. What we can see of people born from 1981 on to some 26% claim no religious affiliation. Among people born between 1965 and 1980, the percentage of non-believers is a lower percent, heading farther back those born from 1946 to 1964 are only 13% non-religious. A doubling, that is, between the boomers and the most recent generation. As you know, doubling is a geometric function. It is the number of non-believers. If the number of non-believers doubles again in 50 years, then by around 2050, the United States will be a majority non-religious country. Clearly, if Christianity seeks to not only stay relevant but viable, it must adapt. The proof is in the numbers. Christianity is suffering. Um, really. Uh, let me uh, just offer this idea here. Um, it's, it, let's go back in time to 33 A.D. 33 A.D. Jesus Christ has been crucified and he has been raised from the dead on the third day. And he has appeared to more than 500 people. And he tells the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. At that moment, um, was the Roman Empire a majority Christian empire or was it a largely minority Christian nation? Yeah, see, for, like, just if you were to just crunch the, the numbers themselves... Uh, Christians at the time of 33 AD probably le- equaled less than one half of 1% of the total population of the Roman Empire. In fact, one half of 1% might be uh, too generous. We're talking literally of only a few hundred people. Now, gr- granted, they, on the day of Pentecost, I mean, they did add a several thousand more uh people to the Christian ranks, but that came about not because the Apostle Peter was trying to consciously find a way to make Christianity more, uh, you know, relevant to, uh, you know, the the, the average Roman citizenry. You, You see what I'm saying? He didn't, I don't find anywhere in the book of Acts, not one place do I find a single instance of the Apostles taking a survey to figure out just exactly what the you know what percentage of the population was Christian as opposed to not Christian, in order to decide whether or not the message had to adapt or perish. In fact, Jesus kind of sent them out in, in, with no uh, eye towards polls whatsoever. He said, "Go and make disciples of all nations." Didn't say anything about taking a poll baptizing him in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
Uh, he also said in Luke 24, go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And throughout the book of Acts, what we find is, is that when Christians faithfully obeyed what Jesus told them to do when it, come, when it came to evangelism, to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in, his, in Jesus' name, and call sinners to repentance, be forgiven, and make disciples of them, focusing them on the apostolic teaching uh, and uh, things like that and sound doctrine and rebuking false doctrine, that's when Christianity grows. When it basically says, who cares what's going on in the culture? There's a bunch of sinners out there. And it went, and Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So let's go preach the word. Let's go proclaim the gospel. You, you see, Alex, um, we've been given timeless truths, truths that don't change. And Christianity doesn't need to adapt. It needs to... Uh, Stop adapting. See, the reason why Christianity's dying and, and, and things aren't going well is because a, a whole bunch of people from modernist liberals to postmodern, uh, postmodern emergent liberals to seeker-driven, purpose-driven guys, they all believe the same thing, that, that, that they, they needed to adapt Christianity to save it from itself because the poll numbers were so grim that they were losing ground. So what did they do? They, they tried to adapt the message to the culture. And by the way, the opposite, it, we're not trying to uh, basically form the culture around us. We, who cares about the culture? There's a bunch of sinners out there who need to hear of what the Savior has done for them. And Christianity grows when the Holy Spirit converts people, and the Holy Spirit converts people only through the preaching of the gospel. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins, law and gospel, that's how it works. And if Christians think that they can get all smarter than God, well, they've got another thing coming. And in the end result is, is that you end up with um, miserably bad poll numbers like we've been seeing. No, Christianity doesn't need to adapt. It needs to stop adapting and get back to faithfully proclaiming the gospel and letting God do what God does. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. think Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. 
You've tuned in just in time to catch today's emergence ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch, and then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Paget are double-teeing Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Paget grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slapshots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. If you change Christianity and try to adapt it, you lose Christianity. Yeah, God doesn't grow his church by letting you tinker with it. 
All right. Quick reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous financial gifts and contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. You could support us a couple of ways. Uh, one by, well, actually both, by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly buttons. One says, join our crew. The other says, Donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute a mere $6.95 every month to Fighting for the Faith. And we are just about 70% of the way to our goal of 1,000 listeners who've joined our crew. And uh, once we get to 1,000, then it guarantees that we'll be able to pay all of our, at least pay our bills every month. Kind of an important thing. And, of course, if you'd like to uh, specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking the Donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, uh, in the uh, things that, uh, no matter how much things change, they all stay the same category. Uh, 1973. Yeah, don't, don't talk to me about the fact that this is only, it's almost <laughs> 40 years ago. Um <clears throat> I was alive at this time, and and uh, but I was too young to you know know who John Stott was uh, is anyway. Uh, back in 1973, John R. Stott uh, gave a speech at Urbana 1973 entitled "Jesus Christ in the Authority of the Word of God," and I want you to listen to this. It kind of in contradistinction to what we just heard, uh, Alex. Wilhelm say that Christianity has to adapt or perish. No, it don't. It don't need to adapt. It needs to faithfully proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. It needs to be faithful, not adaptful. Anyway, uh, here is uh, John Stott. I'm going to read this to you because it's fantastic. Here's what John Stott said in 1973. Authority is a dirty word today. Dirty, disliked, even detested. I doubt if any other word arouses more instant aversion among the young and the radical of all kinds. Authority smacks of establishment, of privilege, of oppression, of tyranny. And whether we like it or not, we are witnessing in our day a global revolt against all authority, whether of the family, the college, the bosses, the church, the state, or God. Now, I'm going to pause right here. And I would even add, in our day, against thought itself. You know, thoughts and truth is oppressive. (laughs) Just the belief that you believe in something that's true is oppressive. Anyway, we continue. Now, the Christian is always in an ambivalent position vis-a-vis the mood of the world. We have to avoid the two extremes of an uncritical acquiescence and of an equally uncritical rejection. On the one hand, we should respond to the contemporary world with sensitivity, listening, striving, and understanding, and where possible, agreeing. On the other hand, we must continue to stand over against the world, evaluating secular society by our own objective Christian criteria, and where necessary, disagreeing, protesting, and rejecting. It is not the calling of the church to be a chorus girl, or to use a more biblical metaphor, a reed shaken by the wind. Hang on a second here. I've got to turn something back on. Uh, here we go. If we adopt this double stance towards the world, what will happen to the debate about authority? It would be extremely foolish if our immediate reaction were completely negative and we were to give the whole anti-authority movement a blanket condemnation. 
For I do not hesitate to say that some of it is responsible, mature, and truly Christian. It arises from the Christian doctrine of man and his dignity as a creature made in God's likeness. It protests against the dehumanization of human beings and sets itself against all injustice and discrimination which insult both God, uh, the creator, and, and man, the creature. It seeks to protect man against exploitation by the system, by the machine, the institution. It longs to see men liberated to enjoy their God-given freedom. It is right, therefore, to detect a grievous misuse of authority when civil rights and freedom of speech are denied to citizens, when a radical or tribal or religious minority is victimized, when an economic system holds people in bondage to materialism, or when education is hardly distinguishable from indoctrination. In such situations, when non-Christians protest, Christians should not be ashamed to be associated with the protest. Indeed, we should have initiated it ourselves. On the other hand, much of today's anti-authority mood is more radical still. Sometimes it is a plea not for the true human liberty which God intends for mankind, but for anarchy, a total abolition of the rule of law, and for an individual human autonomy, every man a law to himself, which God never intended. Christians cannot go along with secularists when they agitate for unlimited permissiveness in social and ethical terms, nor when they foolishly imagine that free thought is intellectual freedom or that free sex is moral freedom. For Christians are convinced that neither truth nor righteousness is relative, since God has given us, by revelation, absolute standards both of what is true and what is right. Which brings us straight to our subject, Jesus Christ and the authority of the Word of God. Our starting point is the remark attributed to Charles Lamb that, quote, if Shakespeare was to come into this room, we should all rise to meet him. But if that, if that person, Jesus Christ, was to come into it, we should all fall down and try to kiss the hem of his garment. For myself, I think we would do more than kiss his clothing. We would surely go on to acknowledge him as our Lord. We would we would kneel beside Thomas saying, my Lord and my God, and beside Saul of Tarsus saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? This is the only possible attitude of mind in which to approach our study of Jesus Christ and the authority of the word of God. For my theme is that belief in the authority of Christian of scripture and submission to the authority of scripture are necessary consequences of our submission to the lordship of Jesus. I propose first to expound this theme and then to draw some deductions from it. Exposition. What is the major reason why evangelical Christians believe that the Bible is God's written uh, God's word written inspired by his spirit and authoritative over their lives? It is certainly not that we take a blindfold leap into darkness and resolve to believe what we strongly success, suspect is incredible. Nor is it because the universal church consistently taught this for the first 18 centuries of its life, though it did, and this long tradition is not to be set lightly set aside. Nor is it because God's word authenticates itself to us as we read it today, by the majesty of its themes, by the unity of its message, by the power of its influence, though it does all of this and more. No, the overriding reason for accepting the divine inspiration and authority of Scripture is plain loyalty to Jesus. We believe in Jesus. We are convinced that he came from heaven and spoke from God. 
He said so. No one knows the Father except the Son. He claimed, again, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. So we are prepared to believe what he taught for the simple reason that it is he who taught it. Therefore, we bring our minds into submission to his mind. We want to conform our thoughts to his thoughts. It is from Jesus that we derive our understanding of God and man, of good and evil, of duty and destiny, of time and eternity, of heaven and hell. Our understanding of everything is conditioned by what Jesus taught. And this everything means everything. It includes his teaching about the Bible. We have no liberty to exclude anything from Jesus' teaching and say, I believe what he taught about this, but not what he taught about that. What possible right have we to be selective? We have no competence to set ourselves up as judges and decide to accept some parts of his teaching while rejecting others. All Jesus' teaching was true. It is the teaching of none other than the Son of God. What then did Jesus teach about the Bible? We have to remember, of course, that the Bible consists of two halves, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the way he endorsed each is different, inevitably so, because the New Testament had not yet been written. The Old Testament. Jesus made several direct statements about the Old Testament's divine origin and permanent validity. He had not come to abolish the law and the prophets, he said in the Sermon on the Mount, but to, but to fulfill them. Indeed, till heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Again, scripture cannot be broken, Jesus says in John 10.35. To these direct statements, we should add the indirect evidence provided by the formula he used to introduce his scripture quotations. For example, he, prefa- he prefaced a quotation from Psalm 110 by the expression, David himself said in, that is, inspired by the Holy Spirit, And he attributed a statement about marriage written by the author of Genesis to the creator himself, who in the beginning made man male and female. More impressive than what Jesus said about Scripture, however, is the way he personally used it. His high view of Scripture as God's written word is amply illustrated in the important place it occupied in his own life and ministry. He did not just talk about Scripture. He believed it and and he acted upon it himself. Let me give you three examples. In each, there was, uh, there was a potential element of uncertainty, a question or a problem. In each, Jesus answered the question and resolved the problem by an appeal to Scripture. In each, therefore, his personal submission to Scripture is plainly seen. The first is the area of personal duty. What did the Lord God require of him? What were to be the standards and values by which he would live his life? The devil raised such questions as these with Jesus in the wilderness of Judea, as he had raised them with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden several millennia previously. The devil tempted Jesus to disobey God, to doubt God, and to desert God. But whereas in the Garden, Eve succumbed to the insinuations of Satan in the wilderness, Jesus resisted them. Be gone, Satan, he cried. Why? Because it stands written in the scripture, you shall not. The plain prohibitions of scripture were enough for Jesus. For him, what scripture said, God said, there was no place for argument, no room for negotiation. 
he was determined to obey God, his father, and he knew that in order to do so, he must submit to scripture and do what stands written there. My second example takes us to the area of official ministry. The Gospels do not describe the process by which Jesus came to an understanding of who he was, his identity, and what he had come to do, his role. It seems very probable, however, that it was through the mediation of the Old Testament Scripture. Certainly before his public ministry began, he knew he was the Son of God, the anointed King, the suffering servant, and the glorious Son of Man described by different Psalms and prophets. Also, he had so fused these different pictures in his mind that he knew he could enter his glory only if he were first to serve, to suffer, and to die. This self-understanding was confirmed to him at his baptism when the father's voice acclaimed him saying if you are my beloved son in whom you are my beloved son in whom i am well pleased but immediately afterwards the devil precipitated him to a into a painful identity crisis challenging him repeatedly in the wilderness if you are the son of god if 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 attempting to sow in his mind seeds of doubt about his identity and his role These temptations continued throughout his ministry. Another crisis came at Caesarea Philippi when Jesus first taught the apostles openly, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed. And Peter rebuked him, No, Lord, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Immediately, Jesus rounded on Peter with the fierce words, Get behind me, Satan. He recognized in the words of Peter the voice of the devil. It was the same question of his identity and his role. Peter did it again in the Garden of Gethsemane when he drew his sword and tried to avert the arrest of Jesus. Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place. Do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must that it must be so? This must the son of man must suffer. It must be so has only one explanation. It was a necessity laid upon him by scripture. Scripture revealed to him his messianic role. He was determined voluntarily to fulfill it because as far as he was concerned, what Scripture said, God said. The third area of questioning in which Jesus was involved was that of public controversy. Each reader of the gospel quickly notices how many public debates they include. Regarding him as a particularly wise rabbi, individuals would come to him with their questions. Sometimes they were genuine inquiries like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? On this occasion, Jesus' reply is significant. He, he responded with a counter question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus was also drawn into disagreement with religious authorities, in particular the rival groups known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees both criticized him and came to him with their trick questions. The Pharisees complained that his followers did not observe the traditions of the elders in ceremonial matters like washing their hands in their vessels. In his reply, Jesus accused them of rejecting the commandment of God and making void the word of God in order to keep their traditions. The Sadducees, on the other hand, who did not believe in survival or resurrection, emphasized the problems of an afterlife, the problems an afterlife would create. They asked Jesus what would happen to a poor woman who had seven husbands, one after the the other, each of whom she outlived. Whose wife would she be in the resurrection? 
would she have one of them, which would mean that the other six were out of luck, or none of them, which would be a bit hard all around, or all seven, which somehow doesn't not sound decent. They thought they could depose, uh, dispose of the doctrine of the resurrection by ridicule. But Jesus said to them, Is not this why you are wrong, that you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? Thus, Jesus' complaint to both religious groups concerning uh, concern their cavalier treatment of the word of God. For the Pharisees added to Scripture, namely their traditions, while the Sadducees subtracted from Scriptures, namely the supernatural. Neither of them gave Scripture the respect it deserved as God's words, as God's word written. Jesus accused the Pharisees of making it void and the Sadducees of being ignorant of it. In both cases, he appealed against their teaching to Scripture. He made Scripture the judge. In each of these three examples concerning the realms of personal duty, official ministry, and public controversy, there was a question, a problem, a dispute. In each case, Jesus turned to Scripture to answer the question, to solve the problem, to settle the dispute. When the devil tempted him, he resisted the temptation with, It stands written. When the apostles rejected the necessity of his sufferings, he insisted that the scriptures must be fulfilled. When the Jewish leaders criticized his teaching, he criticized their treatment of scripture. This evidence cannot be gainsaid. Jesus endorsed the Old Testament as the word of God. Both in his view of scripture and in his use of scripture, he was entirely and reverently submissive to its authority as to the authority of God's own word. Now, the disciple is not above his teacher, nor is the servant above his Lord. How then can we, the disciples of Jesus, possibly have a lower view of scripture than our teacher himself had? How can we, the servants of Jesus, allow Scripture to occupy a smaller place in our lives than it occupied in the life of our Lord himself? There are only two possible escape routes from this obligation. The first is to say that Jesus did not know what he was talking about, that the incarnation imprisoned him in the limited mentality of a first-century Palestinian Jew, and that consequently he believed the Old Testament as they did, but but that he, like them, well, he was mistaken. The second is to say that Jesus did not know what he was talking about, that he actually knew Scripture to be unreliable, but that he still affirmed its reliability because his contemporaries did, and he did not want to upset them. According to the first explanation, Jesus' erroneous teaching was involuntary. He he couldn't help it. According to the second, it was deliberate. These theories portray Jesus as either deceived or a deceiver. They discredit the incarnate Son of God. They are incompatible both with his claims to speak what he knew, to bear witness to the truth and to be the truth, and with his known hatred of all hypocrisy and deceit. They are totally unacceptable to anybody who has been led by the Holy Spirit to say Jesus is Lord. Over against these slanderous speculations, we must continue to affirm that Jesus knew what he was teaching, that he meant it, and that what he taught and meant is true. The New Testament. The argument here is different, but equally compelling. If Jesus endorsed the Old Testament, setting upon it the stamp of his own approval, he also foresaw the writing of the scriptures of the New Testament, parallel to the scriptures of the Old Testament. Indeed, He not only foresaw it, he actually intended it, and he deliberately made provision for it by appointing the authorizing of his apostles. Apostle 
is the title which Jesus himself chose for the twelve in order to indicate their role. He called his disciples, Luke writes, and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Mark adds that the appoint, that he appointed them to be sent out to preach. The verb apostello means to send, and the mission on which he proposed to send them was essentially a teaching and preaching mission. It is true that the word apostolos seems to have been used once in the New Testament to describe every Christian, John thirteen sixteen, for Jesus sends us all into the world as his ambassadors, and we are all called to have some share in the apostolic mission of the church. It is also true that the same word apostolos is used once or twice in the expression apostles of the churches, which seems to refer to what we would call missionaries, Christians sent on a particular mission by the church. Nevertheless, the almost universal practical uh, universal practice of the New Testament is to restrict the word apostolos to the special apostles of Christ, namely the original twelve, together with a very small number of latter later additions, notably Paul and James, the Lord's brother. There was a double background to the word apostle, ancient and contemporary, which helps us to interpret its meaning and understand why Jesus chose it. The ancient background is biblical, namely the repeated Old Testament use of the verb to send in reference to the prophets of God. Come, said God to Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh in Exodus 3.10. And later Moses insisted over and against his jealous rivals, you shall know that the Lord has sent me and that it is not, it has not been of my own accord. It was even clearer in the case of the great prophets of the 7th and 8th centuries B.C. Whom shall I send, God had asked in Isaiah's hearing. Send me, Isaiah replied. To all to whom I send you shall go, he said to Jeremiah. And to Ezekiel, son of man, I send you to the people of Israel. Several times the word of God came to Jeremiah saying, I have sent to you all my servants and prophets, sending them persistently In each case, the sending is not a vague dispatch, but a specific commission to assume the role of a prophet and to speak God's own word to the people. It is evident that when Jesus gave to the twelve the title apostles and sent them out to teach, he was likening his apostles to God's prophets and indicating that they were to speak in his name and to carry his word to others. The prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament were equally organs of divine revelation. As such, they are the foundation on which the church is being built. The second background was contemporary. It appears from recent research that apostolos is the Greek equivalent of the Aramaic shaliach, and that shaliach already had a well-defined meaning as a teacher sent out by a Sanhedrin to instruct Jews of, of the dispersion. As such, the shaliach carried the authority of those he represented so that it was said, the one who is sent is as he who sent him. In the same way, Jesus sent out his apostles to represent him, to bear his authority and to teach his name so that they could say of them, he who receives you receives me. Both the prophetic and rabbinic background throw light on the meaning of the word apostolos. The apostle was a specially chosen emissary, the bearer of another uh, and higher authority and the herald of a given message. 
when one turns to the New Testament itself and to the New Testament's understanding of the apostles of Jesus, it appears that they were given a threefold equipment for their task, which together rendered them a unique and irreplaceable group. These three qualifications were their personal commission, their historical experience, and their special inspiration. First, their personal commission. No apostle was self-appointed or even appointed by another man or men or even by the church. They were all personally chosen, commissioned, and authorized by Jesus. This was clear in the case of the Twelve. Out of a much wider constituency of disciples, Jesus chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. It was equally clear that in the case of Paul, although Christ chose him after the ascension, one of the accounts of his conversion, which Luke preserves in Acts, includes the very words of apostolic commissioning, Ego apostolo say, I apostle you, or I make you an apostle. And in his letters, Paul not only asserts his apostleship, um, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, but vigorously, vigorously defends it, for example, in Galatians 1.1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Second, their historical experience. Again, this is clear in the case of the twelve. Jesus appointed them, writes Mark, to be with him and to be sent out to preach. These two purposes belong together. They could be sent out to preach only after they had been with him, for their preaching was to be a witness to him out of their own experience from what they had seen and heard. You are also a witness, Jesus uh, was to say to them later, because you have been with me from the beginning. So when the time came for somebody to replace Judas... The essential qualification Peter laid down was that he must have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, and in particular that he must, be, he beca- he must quote, become with us a witness to his resurrection. Saul of Tarsus seems to have been the last apostle to be appointed, although he was not one of the twelve and did not know Jesus during his public ministry. Yet he had been granted a resurrection appearance. Without this, he could not have been an apostle. I am not an apostle, he cried. I have not seen uh, Jesus. Uh, I have not. Have I? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And again, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles. The same was true of James. Third, the apostles were given special inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Of course, all Christians have received the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to show Christ to us, and to make us like Christ. But Jesus promised the apostles an altogether unusual ministry of the Holy Spirit relating to their teaching ministry. The Spirit would bring to their remembrance all that Jesus had said to them, and he would teach them many things which Jesus had not said to them because they had, not, they had, they had been unable to bear them. In fact, he would guide them in all truth. These promises evidently look forward to the writing of the Gospels in which Jesus' teaching was remembered and of the epistles in which Jesus' teaching was supplemented. 
In these three ways, Jesus made a purposeful preparation for the writing of the New Testament scriptures. He gave his apostles a personal commission, a historical experience, and a special inspiration. Each was a gift of Jesus to them, and each was designed to equip, equip them for their unique roles as his apostles. The next uh, the next point to notice is that the apostles understood these things. They were conscious of the unique position to which Jesus had appointed them. They exercised the authority which he had given them, and they expected the churches to acknowledge it also. We see this in their letters, which they ordered to be read publicly in the early Christian assemblies alongside of the Old Testament scriptures. Paul stated that his message was the word of God, and that the very words in which it was communicated were not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. This is a claim not to divine revelation only, but to verbal inspiration. Further, he issued commands and required obedience, for he could say, what I am writing to you is a command of the Lord. When he went to Galatia, they received him as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. That is, if he were himself God's messengers, God god's christ he would not he would he did not rebuke them for this far from it his complaint was not that they formally regarded him thus but that but that now false teachers had made them less ready to defer to his authority and he evidently told the corinthians that christ was speaking in and through him for he referred to their desire for proof that that this was so turning to other apostles peter identified the good news which he had preached and by which his converts had been born again as the living and abiding word of God. And John declared not only that what he and his fellow apostles proclaimed was what they had seen and heard, but that this original teaching of the apostles was normative for all times. Consequently, he kept calling his readers back to what they had heard from the beginning. Indeed, conformity to apostolic teaching and submission to apostolic authority were major tests whether religious te uh, teachers really knew and possessed God themselves. The authority of the apostles which Jesus gave them and which they consciously exercised was recognized by the early church. The first thing we are told about the newly spirit-filled church on the day of Pentecost is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Spirit-filled churches always do. The post-apostolic fathers understood clearly that the apostles were unique. Clement of Rome wrote to the Corinthians at the end of the first century, the apostles received the gospel for us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was sent forth from God. So then Christ is from God and the apostles are from Christ. At the beginning of the second century, Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, wrote to the Romans, I do not, as Peter and Paul issue commandments unto you, they were apostles. I am but a condemned man. Wow. Um, uh, somewhat later, about AD 200, Tertullian of North Africa was yet more explicit. We Christians are forbidden to introduce anything on our own authority or to choose what someone else introduces on his own authority. Our authorities are the Lord's apostles, and they, in their turn, choose to introduce nothing on their own authority. They faithfully passed on to the nations the, uh, the teachings which they had received from Christ. When the time came to settle the canon of the New Testament, and, to partic and particularly which books should be excluded, the supreme question about every question-marked uh, book was whether it possessed apostolic authority. 
Had it been written by an apostle? If not, did it carry the imprimatur of the apostles in that it came from their circle and represented their teaching? The test of canonicity was uh, apostolicity. It is tragic in our day to witness the loss of this understanding. People talk of Paul, Peter, John, and the other apostles as if they were foolish and fallible first-century Christians whose teaching was nothing but their own opinions and may readily be set aside if we do not happen to like them. Even biblical scholars are sometimes more irresponsible in their treatment of the apostles. That's Paul's view, they say, or Peter's or John's. But this is mine, and my view is just as good as theirs, in fact. But no, the teaching of the apostles is the teaching of Christ. To receive them is to receive Christ. To reject them is to reject Christ. Would that we could return to the clear-sighted understanding of the 16th century reformers on this matter. Here, for example, is Luther. Jesus subjects the whole world to the apostles through whom alone it should and must be enlightened. All of the people in the world, kings, princes, lords, learned men, wise men, holy men, have to sit down while the apostles stand up, have to let themselves be accused and condemned in their wisdom and sanctity as men who know neither doctrine nor life nor the right relation to God. We are already now, we are now ready to summarize the argument for our acceptance of the whole Bible as God's word, written, unique, uniquely revealed, verbally inspired, supremely authoritative. The argument is easy to grasp, and we think impossible to refute. It concerns the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. He endorsed the Old Testament scripture. He made provision for the writing of the New Testament scriptures. This argument is not circular, as some objectors maintain. They represent us as saying something like this. We know Scripture is inspired because the divine Lord Jesus said so, and we know the Lord Jesus is divine because the inspired Scriptures say so. If that were our position, we would indeed be arguing in a circle. But our critics mistake our reasoning. Our argument is not circular, but linear. We do not begin by assuming the very inspiration of Scripture, which we are setting out to prove. On the contrary, we come to the Gospels, which tell the story of Jesus without any doctrine of Scripture or theory of inspiration at all. We are content merely to take them at their face value as first-century historical documents, which they are. Recording the impressions of the eyewitnesses. Next, as we read the Gospels, their testimony through the work of the Holy Spirit leads us to a faith to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. And then this Lord Jesus, to, in whom we have come to believe, gives us a doctrine of Scripture, his own doctrine, in fact, which we did not have at the beginning. Thus, the argument, argument runs not in a circle, Scripture witnesses to Jesus, who witnesses to Scripture, but in a line. Historical documents evoke our faith in Jesus, who then gives us a doctrine of Scripture. The central issue relates, therefore, not to the authority of the Bible, but to the authority of Christ. If he accepted the Old Testament as God's word, are we going to reject it? If he appointed the authori and authorized his apostles, saying to them, He who receives you receives me, are we going to reject them? To reject the authority of either the Old Testament or the New Testament is to reject the authority of Christ. It is supreme, it is supremely because we are determined to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ as Lord that we submit to the authority of Scripture. But an objector might say, 
does it really matter whether the Bible is complete, completely and infallibly true or not? Isn't the argument rather academic and remote from real life? No. The question of biblical authority is of immense personal, practical, and contemporary relevance. Just how fundamental is it to every Christian, everyday Christianity, I hope now to show in a series of four deductions. First, submission to the authority of Scripture is fundamental to Christian discipleship. I am not, of course, implying that this by this that nobody who denies the authority of Scripture can be a disciple of Jesus in any sense at all. The facts are otherwise. There are followers of Jesus whose confidence in Scripture is minimal, but I have to add that their Christian discipleship is bound thereby to be impaired. For what is Christian discipleship? Surely all would be agreed that at the very least discipleship includes worship, faith, obedience, and hope. Yet each of these ingredients is impossible without a reliable, objective revelation from God. How can we worship God if we do not know his character? Christians are not Athenians. We do not worship an unknown God as they did in Athens. We worship in truth, as Jesus said we must, and we glory in God's name, his revealed character. How can we trust God if we do not know his faithfulness? Genuine faith is never irrational. It rests on the reliability of a God who has spoken. The foundation of trust is truth, God's truth and truthfulness. How can we obey God if we do not know his will? Obedience is impossible if no laws or commandments have been given to us to obey. How can we hope in God if we do not know his promises? Christian hope is not in the same is not the same as secular optimism. On the contrary, it is a joyful confidence about the future which is aroused by and rests on specific promises about the return of Christ and the triumph of God. Thus, worship, faith, obedience, and hope, four basic ingredients of Christian discipleship, all depend on our knowledge of God. Worship depends on his character, faith on his faithfulness, obedience on his commandments, and hope on his promises. And God's character, faithfulness, commandments, and promises are all revealed in Scripture. Therefore, Scripture is fundamental to Christian discipleship. If we would grow up into maturity as followers of Jesus, the Word of God will occupy a central place in our lives. Second, submission to the authority of scriptures is fundamental to Christian integrity. Many would deny this and would even affirm the contrary. They regard the acceptance of biblical infallibility as actually untenable and thereby charge Christians who hold it with a lack of mental integrity, with intellectual obscurantism, schizophrenia or suicide or with other horrid crimes. But we plead not guilty to these charges and insist that our conviction about Scripture rises from the very integrity which our critics say we lack. For what is integrity? Integrity is the quality of an integrated person who is at peace and not at war with himself, instead of a dichotomy between his various beliefs, or between what he believes and how he behaves, there is harmony." Now, one of the fundamental and most integrating of all Christian beliefs is the truth that Jesus is Lord. A Christian is somebody who not only confesses with his lips that Jesus is Lord, but brings every aspect of his life under his sovereign lordship of Jesus. His opinions, his beliefs, his standards, his values, his ambitions, everything. To us, then, submission to Scripture for reasons already given is part and parcel of this submission to the Lordship of Jesus. 
We cannot accommodate ourselves to the idea of a selective submission, for example, agreeing with Jesus in his doctrine of God, but disagreeing with him in his doctrine of Scripture, or obeying his command to love our neighbor, but disobeying his command to make disciples. Selective submission is not true submission at all. There is in it a reprehensible element of pride and self-will. This is the reason why Paul refers to false teachers, precisely because they presume not to agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, as he calls them puffed up with conceit, and even as insubordinate an adjective he has just used of unruly children. There is about false, that is, unbiblical teaching, a certain immaturity, arrogance, and lack of discipline, which arise from a basic unwillingness to submit our minds to the Lordship of Christ. This principle indicates what we should do with biblical problems. In affirming the full inspiration and authority of Scripture, we are not by any means denying that there are problems, philosophical, scientific, historical, literary, and moral. But that, but then every single Christian doctrine has problems, and we must learn to deal with problems over Scripture exactly as we deal with problems over any other Christian doctrine. The example I give, I'd like to give is of our belief that God is love. For this is a fundamental part of the Christian creed shared by all Christians of all persuasions. Yet the problems surrounding the doctrine are immense. Questions about the origin and continuance of evil, about why the innocent suffer, about the so-called silence of God, for example, unanswered prayers, and the so-called acts of God, that is, natural disasters. What do we do when confronted with such problems? Do we conclude that in order to preserve our intellectual integrity, we have to renounce our belief in the love of God? Not at all. We retain our conviction about God's love in spite of the problems for the simple and straightforward reason that this is what Jesus taught by word and by deed. It is loyalty to Jesus which gives us the true principle of integrity. It is the same with biblical problems. Of course we should grapple with them. It is no part of Christian responsibility either to pretend they are not there or to ignore them. And as we study them, some will diminish in size and or even disappear. Many problems which troubled former generations are no longer problems today. Yet some problems will remain. We have to be prepared to live with them, believing that if we had further knowledge, they too would be solved. We certainly should not allow the problems to shift us from our conviction regarding the Scripture. For our view of Scripture depends on our loyalty to Christ, not on our ability to solve all the problems. As with the love of God, so with the Word of God. We hold this doctrine in spite of the problems for the simple and straightforward reason that Jesus taught it and exhibited it. And to believe a Christian doctrine because of the acknowledged lordship of Jesus Christ cannot possibly be dismissed by obscurantism. It is the very opposite. It is the Christian humility, Christian sobriety, Christian integrity. Third, submission to the authority of Scripture is fundamental to Christian freedom. Once again, many imagine that the reverse is true. I have several times used the word submission, submission to the authority of Scripture and submission to the Lordship of Christ. And to a large number of our contemporaries, submission and freedom are incompatible. If I am to be free, they say, I must rebel against all authority. To submit to any rule, whether intellectual or moral, is to lose my freedom. But those who say such things have not yet grasped the character of true freedom. True freedom is not absolute. Intellectual freedom, for example, is not the same as free thought. 
What do you say to of the flat earther who denies the earth is round? Is he free? Not at all. He's a fool. He is also a prisoner in bondage to falsehood and to fantasy. Again, what do you say of a man who denies the law of gravity and jumps from the top of the Empire State Building? His freedom becomes a synonym for suicide. True intellectual freedom is found not in independence of the truth, but in submission to the truth, whether the truth is scientific or biblical. When the mind submits to the truth, it is set free from falsehood, from the deceits of men and the lies of the devil, from its own subjective insecurity and from the shifting sands of existential experience and from the ever-changing fashions of the world. Submission to truth is the true freedom. Jesus himself clearly taught this. He said that whoever commits sin is the slave of sin, and that in contrast to this bondage, he could set men free. What was this freedom which he promised? If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Freedom is found in discipleship, and discipleship in continuing submission to the word of Jesus, for the word of Jesus is the truth. No wonder Paul wrote of of his resolve to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Fourth, submission to the authority of Scripture is fundamental to Christian witness. The contemporary world is in great confusion and darkness. Men's hearts are failing them for fear. Has the Christian church any word of assurance for modern man's bewilderment, any light for his darkness, any hope for his fear? One of the greatest tragedies of today is that just when the world is becoming more aware of its need, the church is becoming less sure of its mission. And the major reason for the diminishing Christian mission is diminishing confidence in the Christian message. We Christians should affirm with great confidence that Jesus is the supreme Lord to whom all authority has been given in heaven and on earth, and that he bids us to go and make disciples and to teach them all of his teaching. His commission is that we should proclaim his name as the crucified and risen Savior, and that on the ground of this one and only name, forgiveness and new life are available to all who repent and believe. We have no liberty to alter these terms of reference which Christ gave his church in his commission. There is only one gospel. We may neither embellish nor modify nor manipulate it. We are to be the heralds of God's good news. We are charged to lift up our voice with strength, to lift up without fear, and to publish abroad the salvation of God. Our announcement is given to us. We do not invent it. All we contribute is the voice to make it known, yes, and the life and love which lie behind the voice. In this respect, every Christian resembles John the Baptist, for each of us is to be but a voice crying in the world's dry wilderness, bearing witness to Christ, gladly decreasing in ourselves in order that he may increase. So I conclude, I have tried to develop only two great themes about submission to the authority of Scripture. First, that submission to Scripture is part and parcel of our acknowledgement of the Lordship of Jesus. Second, that submission to the Scripture is fundamental to everyday Christian living, for without it, Christian discipleship, Christian integrity, Christian freedom, and Christian witness are all seriously damaged, if not actually destroyed. Christ still calls us to take his yoke upon us and to learn from him, assuming his yoke is a metaphor for submitting to his teaching authority. He still promises that under his yoke we shall find rest for our souls, 
for he still assures us both that he himself is gentle and then unlike all other yokes, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. If you put this to the test, you will find it, as I have said, to be true. That was just deeply profound. We're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Stay tuned. We get back. Good lecture from John MacArthur. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk to you about auto insurance. As the father of two teenage drivers, I know how expensive auto insurance can be. But as expensive as auto insurance is, it's nothing compared to the cost of not having it when you need it. That's why I'm excited to have Allstate Insurance as one of Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertisers. Did you know that drivers who switched to Allstate saved an average of $396 per year compared to what they were paying other companies? Now, I don't know about you, but I think $396 is a lot of money in these tough economic times. Why don't you give Allstate a call and see how much they can save you? You can reach them toll-free at 877-246-1511. Again, that's 877 246 1511. The good folks at Allstate will be happy to give you a free quote over the phone. And remember, you're in good hands with Allstate. <laughs> the spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, 
We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. today trying to make up for the fact that I'm not making a doing a program on Friday squeezing in a little more than normal plus that that lecture from Stott spot on timely we need to hear it today all right time to switch gears sermon review time although it's not a sermon the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service uh today this isn't a sermon but a very good lecture by uh, pastor john MacArthur from the together for the gospel conference and one that i think it must be listened to because why he's right on this one in the name of the lecture is the sinner neither able nor willing the doctrine of absolute inability if you do not understand this Christian doctrine the doctrine of original sin the doctrine of total depravity the doctrine of the bondage of the will then you don't understand what the gospel is and you don't understand how to preach the gospel and how Christians are made super clear there Tell you what, let's kill the music. Hold on, what? I just love this part. All right, killing the music. So, without any uh, further ado, here is uh, John MacArthur, the sinner, neither able nor the willing. The subject that I have this morning, and by the way, before we dig it into that a little bit, it's just always an honor to minister with these men. Um. And it's a privilege and a joy to be here at this conference and to minister to you. Obviously, you are the most important people in the world. Most important people in the world preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't run nations. They don't run institutions. They don't run corporations. They don't run universities. They make an eternal difference. They're a saver of life to life and death to death. And who is adequate for such things except that one called to minister the gospel? So I know who I'm talking to. A more important group than kings and princes and presidents and emperors and prime ministers and all others. It is therefore critically incumbent upon us that we understand the nature of our message that we understand the foundations of our gospel. 
And that's what kind of prompted me to want to talk about the subject of total depravity or unwilling and unable as a theme, a gospel theme. If you would open the Bible for a moment, I want to read a few scriptures to you, just a very few. And then we'll talk a little bit about the importance of this subject and then come back to the scripture. In John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40, our Lord said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Those who search the scriptures, those who search the scriptures with a view to eternal life, those who search the scriptures with a view to eternal life, which scriptures bear witness to Jesus Christ, are nonetheless unwilling to come to him. Why is that? Turn to John 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The doctrine of human unwillingness and inability is perhaps the most attacked doctrine, wittingly or unwittingly. The idea that sinners are completely helpless to redeem themselves or to make any contribution to that redemption from sin and divine judgment is the most attacked because in the big picture it is the most despised doctrine. Consequently, it is the most distinctively Christian doctrine. Contrary to all non-Christian views of man. All religions in the world are some form of a works righteousness system. And at the foundation of all those religions, other than the true faith in the true gospel, is the idea that people can be good and good enough to contribute to their salvation. To somehow merit favor with deity and a happy afterlife. Because this is the universal foundational doctrine of all false systems of religion, it is therefore the most because I should say the opposite of it is the foundation of all these religions. It is therefore the most attacked Christian doctrine. It is distinctively Christian because it affirms the absolute inability of man to do anything to contribute to his salvation. It is a contrary doctrine as well. It doesn't sit well with the sinner. Because one of the dominant features of universal human fallenness is deception about one's true condition. Based on the dominating reality of human pride, the sinner is unwilling to see himself in his true condition and is convinced 
to one degree or another of his goodness. People will deny that they are evil, that there are sins in their lives, but they do not see the evil in their good and they do not see the evil in their religion. They will deny that they are incurably evil, hostile to God, and utterly incapable of any true good. This because they are self-deceived. There are people who even invoke the name of the true God, people who invoke the name of Jesus, people who claim to love God, while in reality they hate the true God. They may have sentimental affection for the God of their own making, but they actually hate and cannot love the true God. And when you tell them, that there is nothing in them that is good and nothing in them that can please God. They can do human good. They can do human philanthropy and in the sight of men. They can do things that are moral and noble. But they can do nothing that ascends to satisfy God's requirement for a relationship with Him and for entrance into heaven. They resent it. It is the most paradoxical doctrine in that sense because people denying that they are so bad they can make no contribution to their salvation, still have to admit that there are some sins in their lives and they're unwilling to assume that God has a right to hold them eternally accountable for those. False religion becomes the most heinous of all sins. It is the breach of the first commandment, to love the Lord your God and to have no other gods before you. And religion does not cancel out this doctrine, rather it proves it. Man is so deeply sinful that he invents false gods, gods of his own making, and religions to directly show his hatred of the true God. It was John Bunyan who said the best prayer I ever prayed had enough sin in it to damn the whole world. And Isaiah who said all our righteousness is as Filthy rags, a very, very gross expression in the Hebrew language. I'm concerned because so many evangelical spokesmen today seem to hate the truth of total depravity as they seem to hate the God of Scripture because they continue to deceive the sinner about his goodness and they hide the true God behind a benign domesticated God of their own making. This doctrine is most minimized when it should be most maximized. False belief systems all affirm human goodness. That man has enough goodness in him to contribute in some way to his salvation. This becomes the basis of manipulative church growth strategies. Those who reject, those who despise, those who derogate, those who minimize or ignore the doctrine of depravity, I think have done as much to impede the advance of the gospel as the open enemies of the cross. Every movement in Christianity that has minimized or rejected this truth has Badly strayed soteriologically. It's not to say they're not Christians. It is to say that they are 
profoundly confused. To grasp the truth of depravity is to understand all other doctrinal components of salvation. They become obvious. And true gospel ministry transcends all forms of manipulation and is recognized purely as a divine work. It is the most God-glorifying doctrine, honoring God completely and leaving no honor for man. If you just dropped into the world today, the evangelical world, you might think that uh, this doctrine was a recent arrival because free will, quote-unquote, doctrine is so popular today that when people hear the doctrine of total depravity, they think it's something new. They think that the idea of man's free will and ability to contribute to his salvation is orthodox. But the fact is, this is the most historical doctrine. This doctrine of total depravity. The Bible's clear teaching on original sin has been defended as essential to Christian orthodoxy for a long time. It was not invented in the modern time. It was not invented by John Calvin or Luther or any other reformers. Just a quick bit of history. You don't need a lot of this, but the quintessential episode was the Pelagian controversy early in the 5th century, as you well know. Pelagius and Celestius objected to the biblical teaching as represented by Augustine, who taught that sinners are totally unable to obey the gospel of God unless God intervenes by grace to free them from sin. According to Pelagianism, anyone who chooses to obey God can do so. Pelagianism denies that human nature is in any way defiled or disabled by inherited sin. That Adam's sin put the whole race in a hopeless bondage to sin is just not true. Pelagianism says every person possesses perfect freedom of will as Adam did. And so we sin purely by choice, not by compulsion and not by nature. Sinners have the power to change those choices and free themselves from sin by the freedom of their own will. This idea, by the way, was formally denounced at the Council of Ephesus in 431. A new wave followed as people struggled to hang on to human freedom, which said that Adam's sin had, quote, in some measure affected and disabled all men, but sinners were left with just enough freedom of the will to make the first move of faith toward God And then God's grace kicked in. But sinners made the first move, and that's what became known as semi-Pelagianism. Some would call it prevenient grace. There's a component of grace in all human beings that gives them, in the freedom of their own will, the ability to initiate salvation. The idea is that depravity is real, but it is not total. Saving grace from God then becomes a divine response rather than the efficient cause of our salvation. This view was denounced, as you know, by several councils starting around 529. Centuries before John Calvin, this doctrine of depravity was upheld. When you study uh, the history of Huss and Wycliffe and later Tyndall and Luther and, of course, Calvin and the Reformers, Luther's great treatise, The Bondage of the Will, which he wrestled with Erasmus, 
to defend this great doctrine was really the fruit of, of Augustine and those who adhered to that before Luther. Calvin defends this biblical truth as the first point in his institutes, the foundation of all anthropology and all soteriology. The Westminster Confession says man by his fallen state of sin has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. You find the similar things in the London Baptist Confession, in the Anglican 39 Articles, in the Belgic Confession, etc. This is an historic doctrine. Now, having said that, we ask the question, what is the Bible's teaching on this doctrine? When the Bible speaks about the condition of the sinner, with what words does it speak? Well, when the Bible speaks of the sinner's condition, it is usually in the language of death. Sometimes darkness, sometimes blindness, hardness, slavery, incurable sickness, alienation. And the Bible is clear that this is a condition that affects the body, the mind, the emotion, the desire, the motive, the will, the behavior. And it is a condition that is so powerful, no sinner unaided by God can ever overcome it. It should be obvious why I am dealing with this on this occasion, because pragmatism has engulfed and swallowed up the the professing church. Theology has been replaced by or subverted to styles of methodology. I think it is a strange phenomenon that throughout history, denominations were established based around a common theology, and now associations are established based around a common methodology. So much of current evangelical strategy is to identify what people desire and tell them Jesus will give it to them if they choose him as their savior. In fact... God is seen as sitting in heaven loving them so much that it's almost irritating to him that they won't come to him for the things that they desire. No one seems to be considering or few seem to be considering the fact that what the unconverted sinner desires is the last thing that God wants to give him. Until he desires righteousness hungers after righteousness, deliverance from sin and death and judgment. Some familiar texts need to be looked at, so let's look at them. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Here's the language of death in a very familiar portion of Scripture. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. The prepositional phrase, by nature, is by birth. By birth. We have inherited a corrupt nature 
from Adam. From Adam. We, we understand that. Paul in the epistle to the Romans is clear that in Adam we all died. First Corinthians 15, Paul says it again. Uh, we have all literally inherited death. This is the corruption of original sin. We are sinners by nature, by birth. And it is a profound kind of condition in that we walked according to the course of this world, borrowing from 1 John 2, driven by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, according to the power of the prince of the air, the spirit working in the sons of disobedience, motivated and driven by lusts of our flesh, desires of the flesh, and of the mind. If anything is to change this, it must be the grace of God. That's why verse 4 says, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is the divine miracle in which God makes the dead alive. In chapter 4 of Ephesians and verse 18 this condition is described again as a death being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their hearts. It is a condition from which the sinner cannot recover on his own. Colossians 2.13, you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive. God commands and life comes. It's kind of analogous to the resurrection of Lazarus when Jesus stepped before the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come out. There was nothing in dead Lazarus capable of responding. And so the one who gave the command gave the life so that Lazarus could respond to the command. We are a race of Lazaruses. God commands us and must give us life to respond. This is foundational as you know. And it is a profound kind of condition that we must understand. We'll talk about some implications in a minute. But let me just work you through John for a minute. John 1, 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That is unmistakable unmistakable salvation being the work of God but perhaps uh, the most significant of John's indications regarding the necessary act of God to awaken the sinner is found in the third chapter and it's a familiar section of scripture but perhaps a little overlooked at the point that I want to make John chapter 3 you are very familiar with it, Nicodemus. And no one is going to be uh, 
able to see the kingdom of God unless he's born again, Jesus said in verse 3. Very interesting. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? he? He's not stupid. He's a teacher in Israel. He's speaking metaphorically. He's picking up on Jesus' born-again metaphor and asking the question, how does that happen? How does it happen? You can't do it on your own. You can't birth yourself. That's his point. He gets it. He, he understands that man has no capability to bring birth to himself. Jesus follows up by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, referring back to Ezekiel, the regeneration, the new covenant picture of that, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Flesh can only produce flesh, and flesh cannot produce spiritual life. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. But how? How does it happen? How, how can I enter into my mother's womb, speaking metaphorically? How can I be born again? And what Jesus doesn't say is, pray this prayer. What Jesus doesn't say is, here are the four steps, five steps, six steps, or whatever. What Jesus says in verse 8 is just absolutely shocking to the free will world. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it. Don't know where it comes from, where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. What in the world kind of an answer is that? Our Lord is saying, it's not up to you. It's up to the Holy Spirit. And you have no control over where and when the Spirit moves. No control. This is a divine work. It has to be a divine work. Flesh just produces flesh. Dead people can't give themselves life. Spirit gives life to whom he will. And you can see when it happens, but you can't make it happen. It's the Spirit's work. In chapter 5 and verse 21, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so, the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. The Spirit and the Son are in agreement this work is a work of divine, sovereign power. And then, of course, we commented earlier, re reading John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 8, 36, If the Son shall make you free... You shall be free indeed. It's the work of the Son. It's the work of the Spirit. It's the work of the Father who draws. In none of these texts, by the way, did Jesus defend the sinner's ability. 
None of these texts did Jesus defend free will. Yes, the sinner has will, and his will is activated by the Spirit in the work of salvation, but his will is not free. All sinners are the living dead. Their hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And Jeremiah also says they don't have the power uh, like the leper change his spots, the Ethiopian his skin. His mind is corrupt as well as his heart. Every way possible, it is also unable and incapable. Listen to Romans 8, 7 and 8. The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Perhaps that's the most definitive text of all texts to talk about the sinner's absolute inability. The sinner is unwilling, unwilling to acknowledge the true God on his own. The sinner is unable to acknowledge the gospel on his own. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man understands not the things of God. And again, their foolishness to him because we go back to the natural. It is his nature that is fallen and corrupt and unwilling and unable He cannot understand these things because they are spiritually discerned or appraised, and he is spiritually dead. In the language of 1 Corinthians 12.3, no man can say Jesus is Lord but by the Spirit of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 4, it says the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ as the image of God. It's a compounded blindness. They are blinded by their own fallenness, blinded by original sin, blinded by their own corruption, and then they are doubly blinded by the God of this world. What can remedy that? We do not preach ourselves, verse 5. We preach Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. We preach the gospel of Christ as Lord and ourselves as slaves. And what happens? Verse 6. God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. That's taking you back to creation. God who created, who spoke light into existence, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Again, it's a divine miracle. It's a transcendent interruption from a sovereign God to give life to the dead and light to the blind. The heart and the mind are affected and infected by depravity. <clears throat> Dare I uh, interrupt uh, John MacArthur? I just want to chime in and say, think of the implications now. Nowhere in Scripture is our free will to make a decision for Jesus anywhere taught. Instead, we are dead in trespasses and sins. That's why I constantly tell people, proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins. Preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. That's how God breathes life into dead sinners and regenerates them. 
all of these pragmatic, purpose-driven prognosticators, the one thing they all have in common, they're trying to basically, hey, look, at Jesus wants to make your life better, and he wants to make it better at work. He wants to make you, give you a better sex life. He wants to give you better-behaved children. He wants to give you a more satisfying work, uh, job, and career. I mean, just make a decision to become a Christ follower, and you're in. They're not making Christians. The people, person who raises his hands after the smarmy music starts and says, oh, I, I, I want to have the better life, too. I, I, I want to be a follower of Jesus and apply these biblical principles so that I can have X, Y, or Z. They're not regenerated. I don't care how many noses these purpose-driven guys are counting. They're not counting true conversions. Conversions wrought through the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of law and gospel, repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Christ and his penal substitutionary atonement for our sins. No. They're drawing a crowd and itching, scratch, it was basically scratching itching ears is what they're doing. But when you understand the doctrine of original sin, total depravity and human inability, you realize those guys ain't actually adding a single soul to God's kingdom. Let's continue. And we've already talked about the will, and it shows up, of course, in the conduct. Read Mark 7. Uh, you're familiar with it. What is it that comes out of the inside of man? What does man produce? That which proceeds out of the man is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. They defile his life because they come from his heart. And I think you're very aware of one other text, but just look at it for a moment. I've preached it many times, I'm sure. Romans 3, none righteous, not even one. None who understands. None who seeks for God. No potential. No capability. No hope on our own. The sum is that man is evil and selfish, unwilling and unable because he is dead He loves his sin. He loves the darkness. He thrives on selfish lust. He's happy to make a God of his own manufacturing and convince himself that he is good enough to satisfy that God. He may see his sin in his sin, but he does not see his sin in his goodness, and he does not see his sin in his religion, and it is his sin in his goodness that is most despicable, for therein is the deception, and it is his sin in his religion that is most blasphemous, because there it is that he worships a false god. This doctrine has been called total depravity. And some people might be confused about that. It might be a little misleading. Depravity, if you look it up in the dictionary or on your computer, now you're going to find the word depravity usually associated with viciousness or vice. One uh, 
definition said to be depraved is to be villainous, degraded, debased, immoral, and dangerous to a twisted degree like rapists and serial killers. So the word itself has come to connote a level of evil not applicable to all. To say someone is totally depraved would take depraved even further, and you would imagine Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, or somebody who kills people and eats them. But to call someone totally depraved doesn't necessarily set them outside the realm of moral perversion in some other category of consummate corruption that we can barely comprehend. To say you're totally depraved simply means that you can only sin, you can't do nothing, you can do nothing that pleases God savingly. And the total part is it affects you totally. Mind, heart, will, action, thought, everything. It is total because it affects absolutely everything. The sinner is utterly unable to raise himself out of his state of death, to do anything to see out of his blindness. The contemporary idea today is that there's some residual good left in the sinner. As this progression came from Pelagianism to semi-Pelagianism and then came down to sort of contemporary Arminianism and maybe got defined a little more carefully by, by Wesley, who was a sort of um, messed up Calvinist, because Wesley wanted to give all the glory to God, as you well know, but he wanted to, f- to find in man some place where man could initiate salvation on his own will. That system has literally taken over and been the dominant system in evangelical Christianity. It is behind most revivalism. It is behind most evangelism. That there's something in the sinner that can respond. And this is sort of like the right in a, in a free country. You have to have this right. This wouldn't be fair if God didn't give the sinner the right to make his own decisions, so that the sinner, unaided by the Holy Spirit, must make the first move. That's essentially Arminian theology. The sinner, unaided, must make the first move. And God then will respond when the sinner makes the first move. What the Bible teaches is that the sinner can't and won't. He is unable. And he is unwilling. He has no capacity to make the first move. He has no interest in making the first move. The first real move. He will make a false move toward God based upon his own fallen desires. So if you tell him, God wants to give you whatever you want... He wants to fulfill all your desires. You are feeding him a lie. You are compounding his deception. And on the one hand, you are hiding the true God. And the other hand, you are continuing to deceive the sinner. 
Unless God moves in power over the dead soul and brings true life and understanding and repentance and faith, no one will ever come to the true God in true saving faith. Until He is absolutely spot on. Nothing in you, nothing in the sinner that would respond, that would make the first move to God. He has to raise us from the dead. God regenerates, gives spiritual life. We have neither the ability nor the inclination, inclination to cooperate with him. Regeneration is monergistic. It is a work of God because the fall has rendered us totally unable to do anything, anything of saving value. In regeneration, we neither resist nor cooperate. We are acted upon, we are changed by the Holy Spirit, not apart from our will, but through our will and by means of the Spirit illuminating our minds so as to understand the gospel. He raises us from the dead, gives us new life and new hearts. This cannot happen apart from the Holy Spirit. This is so foundational, so absolutely basic. That's why in 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul talks about the preaching of the cross is foolishness and stumbling block, it comes all the way down at the end of the chapter and says, For by his doing are you in Christ Jesus. For by his doing. He chose you. He chose, says about four or five times, he chose, he chose, he chose, he chose, he chose by his doing. There can be no other way. Second Timothy chapter 2, another text that is familiar to us. It talks about the attitude of the slave of the Lord who ministers with gentleness. If perhaps, interesting, God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. That they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. It only can occur if, perhaps, God may grant them repentance that leads to the knowledge of the truth. This is not some new idea. This is the historic doctrine that has been affirmed through the centuries. The other option is that God is commanding sinners to do what they cannot do. The gospel call assumes that, true gospel call, that the sinner can do nothing. All the preacher can do is pour out the clear truth of the gospel Use the means of grace, pleading with the sinner and praying that God would be merciful. But God will do what God will do. Only God can make the sinner willing. In Titus, 
You're familiar with chapter 3 as well. Verse 3, we once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, I love these words, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, which He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, what are the implications of this? And I know you know all of these things. What are the implications of this doctrine? Well, there are some historical implications, I think, of rejecting this truth of total depravity. And it's, it's good to think about these. Denial of total depravity has been a staple in our religious culture in America for a while. It is at the heart of old modernism, old liberalism, which said, we're not really concerned about theology, we're not concerned about biblical inerrancy and authority. We just want to live like Jesus in the world. We want to help the poor and the downcast and uh, the disenfranchised. And, uh, and we want to do good works in the world. And the liberals came along and thought that in doing this, they would revolutionize the church. They would reach out. They would build the church. And instead, they destroyed it. They destroyed it. Witness the condition of the mainline denominations that were affected by modernism and liberalism, destroyed the true church and in its place a false religious organization. When I look at the emerging church or the emergent movement, it's hard to classify everything in it, but uh, at its foundation, it is neoliberalism. It's just the same thing exactly back again. It's uh, We don't want to argue about what the Bible means. Uh, we don't know what it means. Nobody knows what it means. Nobody got it right. We didn't get it right. Let's just be like Jesus in the world. Let's just love everybody, help the poor, the disenfranchised. Let's live like Jesus would live in the world. So this is just... This is neoliberalism back again in another form, but it doesn't want to jettison the, the, the evangelical label because that gives it access to you. That lets it get in your mind as if it was legitimate. I'm afraid the church growth movement were the middle modernists between the old ones and the new ones taking us down that same path. That is a great point. Church growth movement, middle modernists, just a light form of liberalism. It's a, it's a milder case that eventually develops into a full-blown case 
of Bible-denying liberalism. We watch the spectacle of church programs and church preaching styles designed explicitly to ape the world and to approach and attract sensual appetites. The illusion is somehow, and we've all been affected by this thing, we don't buy into the whole thing, but we've all been affected by the idea that there's an incipient Arminianism in all this kind of church growth stuff, that somehow the sinner will respond better if the methods change. We have to really be careful of that. Never offer Jesus as the one willing to fulfill the fallen sinner's natural desires. Never. Recognize that the fallen sinner hates God. The true God. And the fallen sinner loves himself fatally. Sure, he wants a God who gives him what he wants. But a biblical approach assaults the sinner's self-worship, blasts the sinner's self-confidence, attacks his smugness, shatters his confidence in his religion and his spirituality, crushes him under the full weight of the law of God and renders him guilty and all his desires evil. You have to call for the sinner to hate himself, all his ambitions, repent of his sins, and come to love the true God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the message under which God awakens the sinner and leads him to repentance and faith. Never appeal to that which enslaves the sinner in an effort to convince the sinner of his need to be rescued from the very enslavement you're appealing to. What is that about? Don't ever appeal to materialism, sex, pleasure, personal ambition, a better life, success. Don't ever appeal to that. You are appealing to what enslaves the sinner in the effort to convince him of his need to be rescued from that very enslavement. Call the sinner to flee from all that is natural, all that powerfully enslaves him. Call him to run, fleeing from all of this to the cross to be saved from judgment. Soft preaching makes hard people. You preach a soft message and you'll have hard, selfish people. You preach the hard truth and it will break the hard hearts and you'll have a soft people. Never change the message from cultural group to cultural group. Shifting contexts do not identify reality. Reality is not on the outside, it's on the inside. And all hearts are the same. All hearts are the same. The hearts of sinners are the same. 
Paul's message never changed. From Jew to Gentile, the starting point may have changed from creation to get to God or from the Old Testament to get to God. But the gospel never changed. The gospel message never changed. And Paul went from country to country, nation to nation, everywhere he went, preached the very same message. And without media... Cultures were defined, local cultures were defined, even town cultures were defined, city cultures were defined, village cultures were highly defined and maybe not mingled with others. You might think, if you live today, that it would be absolutely paralyzing to try to to find some way to speak to people on a cultural level, some contextualization. Paul ignored all of that, absolutely ignored it completely. There's one immutable truth. All hearts are the same. And there's a second immutable truth. All need the same message, same gospel. God's work is heart work, mind work. And the word of God is the source of that which God uses to change the mind and change the heart. The sinner, anywhere he lives, anytime, any country, is always the same. Always the same. This has been an experience that God has allowed me to have through the years, traveling all around the world and preaching everywhere and in so many different languages through so many different kinds of interpreters. And the message never changes, never, ever changes. Also, maybe a, a final practical implication, and I'm just, I just try to share the things with you I know you already know, just to encourage you a little bit this morning. Um, be meek. Be humble. No one should be so humble, no one should be so meek as those who preach the gospel. Because... We're the only profession in the world where we can take absolutely no credit for everything we do. That's right. We can only take credit for what we mess up. We're the only ones in the world responsible only for the failures and none of the successes. Be meek. Don't parade yourself as if you've accomplished some great thing. If God, in his mercy, saves sinners under your preaching. We're just clay pots. Replaceable, breakable, ugly. We get credit for nothing that happens in our work. I guess the bottom line uh, this morning is that I, I would just call you to be faithful, to understand the condition of the sinner is not one that you can remedy with any kind of human manipulation. And the heart of the sinner is the same in any time, in any place. And the message cannot change. And the message is the means that God uses. We are begotten again, Peter said, by the word of truth. That's why it's so great to have an event like this. Just in case somebody might be missing 
the critical issue of getting the gospel right. It's not about how cool you are. It's about how clear you are in the proclamation of the truth. You say, well, wait a minute. Aren't we supposed to adjust like Paul did all things to all men? 1 Corinthians 9. You know, he was just saying one thing when he said all things to all men. He didn't say I changed the message. He didn't say I changed my clothes. He didn't say I changed my vocabulary. He simply said this. I became all things to all men. Not my message. I, he says, became a slave to all. All he means by that is, I made all necessary personal sacrifices to reach everyone. That's what he was saying. And so it is that we are called to be slaves of Christ and make those sacrifices. May God use us as we're faithful to his gospel. Father, we pray that you'll give us a great time today and just seal to our minds that which would honor you and use it, Lord, for your glory, we pray in the Savior's name. Amen. Amen. I thought it was fantastic. Spot on. Good biblical, clear exposition of what the Bible teaches regarding the bondage of our will. Total depravity. Original sin. If you understand this foundational, biblical, Christian doctrine, you won't get caught up in the monkey business that these purpose-driven prognosticators and their stupid methodologies that they think that they can somehow entice sinners into the kingdom of God using their favorite bait, sin. Appealing to their sinful appetites. That's not how Christians are made. God is the one who causes the second birth, the born-again thing to happen through the preaching of his law and the gospel. The law to condemn us and to show us our need for a Savior and to strip away all pretenses that we are prone to have, that we are basically good people. When you preach the law lawfully, it takes that away from people right off the bat. And then you offer them Christ and him crucified for our sins. The law drives us to hopelessness. Our hope is only in Christ, only his death, only his sacrifice on the cross for our sins is what saves us. And it's the only thing that can comfort us. It is the gospel, and it regenerates lost, sinful, dead, condemned sinners. need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous financial gifts and contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. You can support us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll find two friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute a mere $6.95 every month 
to the work of Fighting for the Faith as well as Pirate Christian Radio. $6.95. When we get to 1,000 listeners, we're 70% of the way there. When we get to 1,000 listeners, then we're able to pay all of our bills every month. So if you haven't done so, please do so. And, of course, if you'd like to uh, fill in the blank as to how much you'd like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. What'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.